Thank you for joining us today. We are very pleased to have you um, join us for a very important conversation. Um, today's um, event is titled Original Sin, Religiosity, Same-Sex Desire, and Institutionalized Homophobia. Um, I am Gina Gerva. I am one of your co-chairs. I would like to welcome our moderator today, Eric Marcus. He is the founder and chair of Stonewall 50 Consortium. He is also the founder and host of the podcast, Making Gay History. So Eric, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you, Gina. And thank you, Thompson Reuters, for organizing this panel discussion. Um, I'd like to introduce our wonderful uh, panelists today, Imam Dai Abdullah, uh, founder of the Mecca Institute. And the Mecca Institute is an online center of Islamic learning and contemporary Islamic research. Dr. Sherry DeNovo, uh, is Minister of the Trinity St. Paul Center for Faith, Justice, and the Arts, which is an affirming congregation and a member of the Affirm United Movement in the United Church of Canada that, that, quote, affirms the full participation of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer people in our life together. Dr. Aviva Goldberg. Dr. Goldberg is rabbi and co-founder of Congregation Shir Lebenu in downtown Toronto. Uh, Shir Lebenu was founded in 1997. Uh, it's a liberal, egalitarian congregation unaffiliated with any particular stream of Judaism. Um, and Matthias Roberts, uh, Matthias, whose name I seem never to be able to pronounce properly, produces the Queerology podcast, which brings together theologians, psychologists, poets, thinkers, and change makers for conversations around belief and being. Um, and before I get to our stated topic, I want to take a minute to discuss the Supreme Court's decision this week, um, which almost made me a believer. And I apologize, given that this is a panel on religion and I am I'm not a believer, even though I'm Jewish. I was raised Jewish. Um, but really, the Supreme Court decision was so shocking that I thought there has to be a God. Um, otherwise, there's no way this could have been a six to three decision. So um, before we get to our topic today, I would love to hear about your reaction when you heard the news, and I have to tell you, it really brought tears to my eyes when I heard the news. I was completely stunned. And from my reading this week, it seems that the word sex was added to that original Title VII by a right-wing Democrat who was trying to scuttle the whole thing. And so it only wound up in there because of somebody who was trying to, to ruin the possibility of the, of the title being added. So um, that, I think, is divine intervention. Sherry, what did, what did you think when you heard the news? Well, first of all, I, it made me nostalgic because it, back in 2012, it was my bill. I was a parliamentarian at that time that brought trans rights into the Ontario Human Rights Code, which was the first in Canada, and um, and also banned conversion therapy in 2015 here for the first time in Canada. So I, I know the struggles. <laughs> I do know the struggles. I would say um, that, uh, that it is a, a small miracle, uh, to your point, Eric. Uh, I don't think you have to be a believer to say that, which is to say, coming from a theological background, that uh, it took a whole lot of people and a whole lot of work over a whole lot of years um, to get the desired result. And uh, so in that sense, it 
it still was a miracle, um, which is enacted by people on the ground. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of work that went behind that decision. So, uh, but it, it, you know, it's phenomenal in light of the megalomaniac you have in the White House. So, I, I'm I'm impressed, and hopefully, uh, and what we tend to forget about these kinds of actions is that they save lives, is that yeah. they actually save real human lives. So, um, yeah, that's miraculous always. Yeah. Matthias, what do you think? I've been thrilled this week. I, I think my mind continues to go to, you know, this idea of religious exemptions. Like I, I come from a, a very conservative background, I'm no longer in it, but um, I'm quite aware of the conversations that are happening uh, and, and the ways folks are already trying to get around uh, this. And so my mind continues to go to the people who are kind of stuck in those worlds um, where this is lovely news and it will probably make it e much easier for us to to work in those worlds um and there's still work to do so so both and yeah. there yeah yeah I, I remember a time when i i took a job uh in new york city in the queen of in the borough of queens with the queensborough president and had to go in the closet in 1984 back in the closet to take the job and I would never have been hired in the first place, actually couldn't stand being in the closet and quit after six weeks. And I'm pretty sure they would have gotten rid of me if I had been out. Um, and they're, well, anyway, the world has so changed. But, but onto our topic. So my first question is, how have you reconciled your sexual orientation with your religious beliefs? And Guy, why don't we start with you if you're comfortable answering the question? Thank you. Uh, one of the main things is that it's generally understood, or I should say misunderstood, uh, from other religious uh, philosophies, that within Islam, homosexuality is not permissible or it's considered a sin. But that's actually not accurate. Uh, the real aspect is that within the Quran itself, there's nothing that ever speaks to that particular issue. And the only one that they use, which is related to the Judaic and the Christian faith, is the, the story of Lut or Lot um, in terms of that. But their misunderstanding of it is because of the way in which the information came into Islam being third of the process. So uh, it came in from Judaism and then also from two aspects of Christianity. And so the pedophilia, the aspect of inhospitality, and so the Muslims received it in a different light. And going along with their additional taboos that happened later in its, um, Islamic history, they have this misbelief. Or, or mistaken belief. Um, in terms of how do I deal with it, is that because of the scholarship, being able to read the materials, understand the history, and also understanding the way in which one reads the Quran through a particular scientific process, as well as the Hadith, those particular sources that people use, you find that there's a, 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 a um, application of something that was done that was used for empire building and political subterfuge. So his strength comes from that rather than coming from actual textual sources. And so it's very important and part of the aspect nearly 30 years ago when I started this process and notifying people that Quran did not have anything against uh, sexual diversity, it became a major issue. And now today we have many Islamic scholars who support that belief. So it's something that uh, once you know the truth, People can't change the actual information, and they have to adjust their understanding to, um, to be accepting of alternative views 
And that's on a number of different subject matters, including women, children, youth rights, things of this nature, too. So there wasn't a personal struggle for you, ultimately? My personal struggle? Um, well, yeah. I really didn't have one because in growing up, my parents, I graduated from high school when I was 15. I was ready to go off to college. And I spoke with my parents. Um, they always said we should have a very open conversation. I told them that I thought I was gay, 1969. And mm-hmm. as I was rendering my high school diploma, because we had this ritual, I gave it to my father. And I became my own man so I could make my own decisions, but abide by their rules of the house. <laughs> so... At that time, I told them, and they told me there was nothing wrong with me because I had upheld all the standards that they held for my three elder brothers and the rest of the kids, and therefore nothing was wrong with me. And I went off with that support of family. And so uh, I went forward being to be able to become a man-loving man without the stigma that many people I met afterwards uh, who had had that stigma both from a religious and or social um, community standpoint that that made them, you know, feel unconscious, um, very conscious about their sexuality. Yeah, that that just moves me to tears. That's um, such a rare experience for someone of our generation, and um, um, I'm glad I'm glad to hear it. So, uh, of, of Eva, um, uh, I was I went to, I had religious education um, growing up. I uh, went to Hebrew school, and I never remember any discussion. I went to Orthodox Hebrew school. I don't remember any discussion ever about sex or sexuality at all. Although I came to understand uh, from my Orthodox Jewish neighbors who I grew up with um, when I was in my teens, um, I somehow came to understand that being gay was absolutely forbidden. Um, For Shabbos, they would have in a single man. I don't remember his name, but he was, uh, um, I I figured out he was gay. And I always wondered what was, how did that all work? Um, um, But I actually, I don't, I never came out to my, to the girls I grew up with. I knew it would be um, an area that we couldn't discuss. So I wonder for you, what was it like coming to terms with what you learned? Um, And, uh, uh, and I'm not recalling now if the tradition you were raised in was Orthodox Judaism or uh, uh, Reformed or conservative. I was brought up in a modern Orthodox Jewish home. And so uh, we all, and we were very liberal from that perspective. Uh, I actually came out as a lesbian uh, only, in quotation marks, uh, 32, 33 years ago. I had been married. I had kids. Uh, Like you, though, I never had a particular, I guess I did know that supposedly homosexuality was a negative within Judaism, but it was not something that was emphasized, as you know. I mean, there's nothing in the uh, scriptures. There's one line, one passage about homosexual behavior. And no offense, that's for men. Uh, there's nothing about <laughs> women, maybe because the rabbis didn't think women were capable of same-sex attraction. Uh, there is something in the Talmud. In, to make it short, for me, I didn't have to reconcile it with my religion because I Um, moved from modern orthodoxy to what is called Reconstructionist Judaism. And from that perspective, already when I came out for three years before that, the Reconstructionist movement had accepted openly gay and lesbian uh, rabbis. So for me, and individuals, so for me, that wasn't a problem. 
the nor were my fat was my family most of my family uh negative in fact mm. they were quite welcoming to a certain extent um mm. and i just understood judaism to be um elastic enough open enough mm. intellectual enough to allow for all ways of being and so I and I insisted that that is who I was and I could continue to be a Jew at that time and now. Hmm. Sherry, how about for you? And thank you, Aviva. Well, uh, first of all, uh, I would never have walked into a church uh, unless that church was affirming and inclusive. I was, uh, I often say I was luckily raised by uh, agnostics and atheists, social justice types, so church wasn't even on the horizon. So I didn't have any toxic religion to recover from. And I, I walked into the United Church in 1988, which is when they began ordaining openly gay and lesbian folk. Wasn't interested in ordination, didn't even know if I believed in God, but I walked in the door, but I just thought that was so cool that I should support them in that. Um, and I, I came out uh, it, back in the 60s as a kid. Um, I was at Toronto's first Pride in 1971. Uh, at that point, I said to my dad, I'm a lesbian, but um, I, I learned later that I actually am a bisexual. I now call myself queer. So, um, so that's who I am. Uh, and I, I just wanted to like segue a little bit because I know that people out there that are listening are going to think be thinking about scriptural passages and Jesus and all of that. Um, and so I always say to people, two thousand years before Lady Gaga, Jesus says in Matthew uh, nineteen twelve, some people are born that way. And the way he does it is he talks about what is biblically called eunuchs. Now, most people think that's, you know, someone who was a male who was castrated for various reasons. But in fact, Jesus says some are born that way. He's not, uh, I'm sure, talking about intersex folk. He's talking about people that are not interested in heterosexual sex and basically saying everybody is welcome into the kingdom or queendom, as the case may be. Um, so that's that. And, and the Sodom and Gomorrah, and Dai uh, uh, was speaking, mentioned the Sodom and Gomorrah passage. Um, and certainly I describe that passage when I preach on it as queer positive. Why? Because um, for some reason, the angel that comes into that town uh, is seen as different and strange. I mean, he's not from the vicinity. He's, he's an immigrant. Let's put it, make him that. But it, there's also something strange about him that the reaction to him is sexual aggression, is rape. Um, but if you're going to take this story as anything but uh, a story of biblical hospitality, the great ethic of the Bible, um, then you're going to have to say it's okay to rape your daughters, incest's okay, uh, it's okay to have rape of women but not of men. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous to take that story as a story of sexual morality. If anything, it's a story of how do we welcome someone who's different from us, who's mm -hmm. strange to us. That's what the story is about. So, so right, you know, the Christian right is neither is a favorite saying of mine. But I mean, if you're actually going to read this book called the Bible, then read all of it. Don't just proof text. Don't take one line or two lines out of context, mm -hmm. which is what always tends to happen and become then the texts of terror that are used to kill us, literally, in many cases. So, um, so at any rate, uh, I just wanted to touch on on those uh, on those issues because I know that people are thinking about them, even if they don't talk about them. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know why, but my parents had a Christian Bible in our house, and it was illustrated. And I remember reading through a fair amount of it and thinking, oh, my God, this is a crazy story. Um, all kinds of wild stuff. It was. I also had a book from my grandfather. It was an ancient copy of Grimm's Fairy Tales. And uh, the Grimm's fairy, fairy Tales were as brutal and bloody as the Bible. Um, it was very confusing to a child. I read that yeah. when I was probably about my favorite theologian, uh, his, Karl Barth of the 20th century, anyway, said that uh, the Bible is far too important to be taken literally. <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> I love that line. I'm going to have to remember that. And I don't know what happened to that Christian Bible, but I, my father was quite mentally ill. And I know uh, reading some of his intake papers when he was 18 and, and was committed um, that he thought he was an apostle. So maybe that's why when he was doing better that he he got a copy of the Bible and thought of himself as a Christian. But he died quite young and I never had that conversation with him. But I do remember that Bible so vividly with onion skin paper on the pages that were illustrated. Um, and some of the photos were rather the, the illustrations were rather naughty as well. Um, anyway, um, Matthias, you come from a very conservative background, and I wonder how you managed to reconcile that Um and be who you are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I described my upbringing as borderline fundamentalist. I was homeschooled for religious reasons uh, in rural Iowa. Uh, and, and my parents, to this day, still don't accept me for who I am. Um, so it, it has been a long journey of undoing uh, what I was taught. And, and I think kind of the points that I have been able to hold on to First, I mean, this idea within the Christian scriptures of God is love um, and, and holding this idea that as humans, we understand what love is, right? Love isn't a concept that, that looks like gaslighting or calling something other than what we would call love, love. Um, so, so that's one, but, but also with kind of what Sherry was talking about, realizing that the scriptures, you know, have been, have been co-opted very much so within the last 50, 60 years by a political movement uh, and and a lot of the interpretations that we hold on to as truth right now or at least some portions of the church hold on to as truth are relatively new interpretations of scripture um i mean as sherry said go ahead what what was it like for you i mean you just mentioned that your your parents still don't accept you i guess they're not listening to your podcast um, they do sometimes. What is that experience like? I didn't have that experience, and probably uh, plenty of people watching today haven't had that experience of how you yeah. reconcile uh, beliefs you were raised in uh, with who you are and what you've come to understand. Um, that sounds yeah. like a, a potentially painful and long journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I knew that I was gay. I didn't use that language for it, but I knew that I was gay when I was 10, 11 years old. Um, and it was at that time that I also knew that it was deeply wrong, um, that there was something wrong with me. And so, you know, most of my teenage years were spent kind of vowing to myself, no one will ever find out about this. Um, cause I didn't know what would happen. I literally thought that I might be stoned, uh, if people were to find out and, and begging with God, like, please, I will do anything if you would just make me quote unquote normal. Um, and it, it wasn't until that I, until I got to undergrad, which I went to a conservative Christian undergrad in Arkansas. Um, but I found a therapist there who 
for the first time ever in my life told me this wasn't a choice that you made and sexual orientation doesn't change. I went in for conversion therapy. I asked for conversion therapy and he said, that's not what we're going to do here. Uh, that started the journey of, and it was, you know, it was years after that it still took to kind of undo those things. But yeah, it was, it was long. <laughs> One of the painful things about a panel discussion that is an hour and 10 minutes or about an hour, an hour, is that I have 10 follow-up questions for you, for you, Daif, for you, Aviva, and for you, Sherry, um, but I don't get more than an hour. So I'm so thank you for sharing that. And I'd, I'd like to move on to the next question. Um, what role do you see for religion in the fight for LGBTQ rights? Um, there's a long history to this. Uh, you may know it, that there was an organization founded in the mid-60s called the Council on Religion and the Homosexual in San Francisco. Um, there was a famous fundraising ball that was held for that organization on January 1st, 1965, that was raided by the police. Um, it's one of my favorite stories of that period, uh, which I document in my podcast and also in my book. So um, so for Sherry, let's start with you. What role do you see uh, for religion in the LGBTQ civil rights movement since, since religious leaders have been involved since, since the 60s? Yeah, um, well, I have since the 71, but um, in the fight for equal marriage here in Canada, uh, I did the first legalized same-sex marriage in Canada um, back in 2001. It didn't actually become, uh, it was a technicality that we managed to get two women married on, but they got a certificate and then we rejoiced. Um, and then the law went to the, the, our Supreme Court uh, shortly thereafter that same year and became legal for everybody. Um, and I would wear my collar in those debates uh, with the religious right. Um, and in my days as a parliamentarian, um, I was constantly slapping on the collar uh, to argue with the religious, uh, well, the Christian right, as they say, the Christian right is neither, um, about every single piece of queer legislation I brought in and that we eventually got turned into law. The resistance was always from the same quarter, not only Christians, I have to say, but they were front and center, and or they called themselves Christian. Um, and I always argued chapter and verse. Eventually, that's where we would get to on these issues. Didn't matter whether it was trans rights or equal marriage or, or, or rights for children. I mean, this is where I think it really um, it really matters is when you, you start to talk uh, or if people do from the religious right uh, start speaking um, and spouting homo trans and biphobia. Um, what they're really saying is that some children will love some children and not other children. This is profoundly unfaithful for any faith. Um, mm. And so just to, to your original question about why should LGBTQ to class people go to um, go to faith communities, I, I think because they're one of the few places, if they're inclusive, one of the few places that you are called, you don't have to like everybody, I always say, but you do have to love everybody. And it's mm. a place where your marriages are celebrated by a community because that's really what they are, a communal event. Um, your deaths are mourned and your partners are included in all of that. Um, where your babies, you know, are celebrated when they come into this world in various forms. Um, and that's so important, especially for people who have grown up with toxic religious backgrounds um, to be included. And it's not, an, there's no other aim for 
uh, faith communities and to learn to love each other really uh, and to learn to love God of course that's loving each other um, so I, I think all of it's together and if you if you love each other you can't help but fight for each other in terms of human rights Matthias yeah you know, you know I think one of the primary places where this fight is still happening is within the the US Christian religious right and, and so I think for those of us who are people of faith who exist outside of that paradigm, um, we have the ability and that um, I would say obligation to take back our texts and say, no, you can't use these this way. You can't use these in a way that dehumanize um, people. Uh, and, and so I, I think we have a wonderful opportunity, especially within these faith circles, because that's where the conversation is, to be able to step up and, and, and use our faith as a way of saying, like, this is not okay. Um, God loves all of us. Um, so it, it can be used as a tool, I believe. Dai, do you see um, a place for uh, religion in, in, uh, and in your faith uh, fighting for LGBTQ rights? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, I did want to say that, uh, Sherry, I, in the 2004, the Supreme Court of Canada contacted me for my amicus brief to support uh, same-sex marriage. So I just want to let you know we have some history together there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but definitely, I, I support it because I was the first person in United States or North America, actually, to do same-sex marriages for Muslims. So um, that was something that I showed through action that mm -hmm. it was it was something that people could do. And I've always promoted that if you live in a place where it is legal to do so, then protect your legal rights to get married and to raise your families and live your life fully. Versus if you're in a, a Muslim state or a state that does not. Um, a sovereign state that does not um, agree or allow it, then you have other issues you have to deal with. But when you have the freedom to use it. So I've always encouraged them through that. And now I'm somewhere in my 70th, 70th um, marriage, same-sex marriage that I've performed. And also I've done a number of uh, opposite-sex marriages by Muslims, too. What kind of reaction did you get to that first uh, marriage in particular, uh, same-sex marriage that you performed? Well, as with anything else, when I first came out, you, you got the norm, you know, the regular hate you, hate you, hate you, death threat, death threat, death threat. But I told them mm -hmm. all that if, you, if I find out who you are, I'll make certain you go to jail for the rest of your life or removed from this country and sent back to your home country. And, of course, that died mm -hmm. down and we had no more problems. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I like your I like your direct approach. Um, yeah, people do say all kinds of things. I remember back in the '80s when my first book was published and I was on call on television. People felt very comfortable calling up and saying terrible things, but I had to remind them that I was on television in the middle of the night on national television. They were at home calling in to call some young author a faggot, and you know who had the better life. Um, <laughs> Aviva, I wonder uh, if you see a role for um, religion in fighting for LGBTQ rights, particularly within Judaism. Absolutely. I, th I, think, I think that um, as with uh, 
I think the monotheistic traditions, the the core values, which is to, and the word has been used, the phrase very often, tikkun olam. Mm-hmm. And tikkun olam means repair of the world, and that is our responsibility. And so from that perspective, as Jews, as Christians, as Muslims, as people of faith, as people who have no faith, it is our responsibility to try to make the world a better place. Often it is the rabbis uh, who are understood to be spokespeople, but it is the grassroots uh, LGBT individuals to stand up and insist that their religious institutions hear their voices, represent them, and represent us all in political change. So, yes, there is certainly, in my opinion, a role. Yeah. Um, I just want to remind our viewers, if you have questions, uh, put them in the Q&A chat box, and um, actually it's Q&A box, um, and I will uh, get to your questions a little later um, or sooner if it's a question that fits with what we're discussing. I wonder what each of you has experienced, uh, what kinds of things you hear from uh, from congregants, um, uh, Matthias, for you, from people you, you've interviewed, about the challenges LGBTQ people have faced in pursuing a religious life. And Matthias, for you, of course, you face the challenge of growing up in a very conservative community. Um, why don't we start with you? What kinds of things do you hear from people you've had on your, your podcast? Yeah, I mean... Um, among people who grew up in more conservative evangelical spaces, uh, there's a very common theme of having to kind of detach yourself from that world in order to be able to rediscover scripture, faith, whatever you want to call it. Uh, many folks leave, uh, and I don't blame them. Like that, that's a. <laughs> I would say you should probably leave. Um, and then people end up coming back. Uh, some people end up coming back. And, and so um, I, I think, you know, one of the, the challenges and then the struggles is when you have been in a toxic world, in a world that says you are not enough of a human to be in a relationship, um, that has profound damage. I, I, I'm a therapist and I specialize in working with queer folks who grew up in evangelical, wor- in evangelical worlds. Uh, so much shame, so much damage that has to be undone before you can even reapproach uh, uh, faith traditions uh, because of the harm. Mm-hmm. Sherry, you've had, had decades, and I really I, I am in awe of what you have done over a half century. And it's um, a privilege to be in your company. It's actually a privilege to be in the company of all of you, but especially those of you who've been out there for decades. Um, I wonder what you're hearing now versus what you heard years ago. Um, what what has changed over time? Well, I, I was thinking as uh, Dai was talking about his experiences performing um, same-sex uh, marriages, uh, when we performed ours and it became legal and hit the news, uh, we heard from Westboro Baptist, we'll all know what that means, that place means, and Fred uh, Phelps uh, sort of uh-huh. turned uh, their sights on Toronto and on our church and uh, at, with, the, with the slogan, the lesbian sodomite juggernaut rolls on in Toronto. <laughs> I remember that really well because our church said we should make t-shirts with that on. That's pretty cool. Um, uh, but I mean, so that, that, and it was just unbelievable. I mean, it was death threats and all the rest of it. 
but I, I have to say that even to this day, you know, decades later, um, uh, there isn't a month that goes by in my ministry that I don't get. Um, I can usually tell I, before I even open the letter. It's often a letter, not an email, but it's some emails too um, that will be three or four pages. It's chapters and versing, you know, uh, telling me that I'm going to hell and our congregation along with me. Um, I mean, this is a constant drumbeat in the back, I think, of anyone who does this work. Um, and what it says to me is how necessary the work is still. Um, I just had the uh, incredibly privileged uh, experience of watching a trans woman come out as trans to her congregation in a Baptist church in the suburbs of Toronto. Uh, just this last Sunday, I, I took the morning off my own church and watched her give her sermon and just kind of unveil herself as her. I haven't heard the fallout. She fully expects she'll be fired, um, that her life will fall apart and she'll be jobless by the end of the week. I mean, it, it's, it's profound. Uh, I think uh, um, just lots of love to all the rest of the panel, the work that is is going on, especially in religious communities. And I think sometimes we just have to remind ourselves it's worth it. And it's worth mm -hmm. it because literally it's saving lives. I'll come back to that again. But when we look at the suicide rate of um, queer kids, we're saving lives. Yeah. Aviva, um, I wonder how things have changed over the time that you've been in a position of leadership, the kinds of things you hear. Do you have Orthodox or Hasidic um, LGBTQ people who come to you to talk about their struggle? Yes, uh, there are within our synagogue, for example, uh, several individuals who were from an Orthodox community, but I would say that, and who find acceptance in a place such as ours, but I would say that now there are organizations that are available to um, LGBTQ individuals who are from a, a more or an ultra-Orthodox or even Orthodox uh, communities who may have been uh, kicked out of their homes, etc. And there are a variety of institutions or groups, particularly in the United States, actually, that assist these uh, individuals. I think that certainly uh, what I have found is that Though there is more, in quotation marks, acceptance, so to speak, there are more synagogues. I mean, I think it's 70-something percent, 76 percent of Jews um, in uh, United States and Canada happen to be uh, not Orthodox. They are uh, from other denominations, which are much more liberal. Uh, but I think that we still have to remember that our Jewish camps, our Jewish Hebrew, our Hebrew day schools, our Jewish family and child services, our old folks homes, ha our hospitals have to realize and be open to gay individuals and their partners and their children and their families. That hasn't, in my opinion, happened yet. It would appear to me that we're accepted more, but we are still invisible, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So that's, there's a lot yeah. more to be done. Yeah, and for those who don't know, there's an organization called Keshet, um, based in Boston, that works in the U.S. Um, on exactly the issues that you're you're talking about. And I only became aware of them mm -hmm. about a year or two years ago, um, even though they've been around for a long time. They work quietly behind the scenes for the most part. Um, what are the kinds of things you hear from um, 
from people who, and I'm guessing people do come to you because you are a prominent uh, leader in the community, um, and they come share their 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 the issues that they are experiencing around being LGBTQ. Well, um, one of the things that I have in my own personal experience is that as a teenager, my first boyfriend committed suicide. So it was something that I was aware of very early. Um, never found out exactly the reason why, but it kept me aware and very open to understanding the mental health issue of for all, throughout my whole life and actually spent some time working in the Mental Health Institute in my early career. Um, so it's, it made a very big difference, and I find that because of those experiences, I can relate to a lot of young people and to be able to talk with them about those particular things and some of the the things that happen in a person's life. And so that to know that some of these things are not the end of the world, so to speak, but to let them know that even though they may have challenges, there are opportunities for them to learn from them and that there are resources available to them now versus what they were 40 years ago. And that they have to yes. seek them out yeah. in order to make certain that they, that they are trying and they don't always have to be Muslim they can be other resources that they can go to to get a grasp and then learn to adjust as they come to it for their own religious beliefs. Yeah, I thought I really thought it was the end of the world uh, 40 a long time ago, um, for more than 40 years ago, that I would have a life, um, let alone a career, um, and a satisfying career. And, and um, imagine doing that in the work I've, I've done in my life, even though I thought it was the end of, of my life uh, that I was gay. Um, we actually, we do have a question, um, and I'm going to go to that question. In a conservative religious society slash community, how do we sensitize people towards the LGBTQ plus community? And I have to say that in, in my dealings, um, I came to the conclusion, and I could be wrong, that there's a section of the population, about a third or less than a third, that will never come up uh, an LGBTQ child. And even maybe not, um, and that my focus has always been on the middle, um, and there's a whole third that, that just accepts us. There's a whole middle that is not necessarily in our corner always, um, and I wonder how each of you um, uh, would respond to that question. How do we approach uh, or not approach, um, uh, or how do we sensitize people toward the LGBTQ community who come from conservative religious uh, communities? Um, and uh, Aviva, why don't we start with you? It's a, it's a loaded question. I'm not sure of the answer. I think, I, th I think one of the ways of sensitizing people is to ask, to look around and to realize and to find out that there is a niece, a nephew, an uncle, an aunt, a cousin, a best friend, someone in your office, someone that you've worked with your entire life who is LGBTQ. And does that mean that they are different from what you thought they were previous to their coming out to you? I think that's part of it. If we look from a religious perspective, in quotation marks religious, and we uh, then we can step back and say, well, why don't you look at scriptures? Why don't you look at the story that we all share, that the divine created men and women, humanity, not, not black or white or purple or gray or anything like that, but all of us in the divine image. And if we read that, 
then it makes no difference what one's color is, what one's sexual orientation is. We are all in the divine image. And if we emphasize that, then in fact, that's the way I would enter into that. And of course, one could continue to just cite scriptures all over the place regarding being um, open to diversity. I used to be in the old days when I did a lot of uh, call on radio shows, I got very good at quoting, even though that's so not my background, but people would call up and say, you don't believe in God because, or if we let gay people marry, they'll be marrying their pets. And, um, and so I wound up <laughs> quoting scripture. Um, but people thought I was much more religious than I am, but it's very helpful in those arguments to know your, know your Bible. Um, Sherry, um, is there any hope for the Fred Phelps of the world? Did you try to engage them in any way? Uh, I, I didn't try to engage him. I thought it was a little dangerous to do so. But I can tell you an example. Uh, in Canada, there's a, a quite well-known uh, Christian right uh, broadcaster at a nationally syndicated television show. I was on his show a few times um, debating things like equal marriage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I was in public at forums debating those same issues with him. Uh, uh, he had he saw the light. Uh, he came around. He's now written a couple of books on his conversion to inclusion and uh, and is a friend now. So it is possible. And um, and certainly if we're going to be inclusive, we got to include people from the Christian right in our congregations. Likely they won't walk in the door, but um, that's uh, that should be always the message. I, I always hold out hope in politics. You know, I was trying to work across the aisle with conservatives. I, many conservatives signed on to some of my career bills. Um, you never know. And it's to put a human face on it. But I would be very that question from the audience makes me a little nervous because um, I, I, I read into it that somebody is in a conservative religious society or community and they're kind of trying to battle this alone. Don't do it alone, would be my advice. Mm -hmm. Find support. Um, find someone who can give you some backup, who will be in your corner, especially somebody with some theological or religious background that shares uh, you shares you know your best interest and and you know look for help don't um don't go it alone um and especially true for for young people it's a very difficult very painful place to be and uh and i think matthias uh, mentioned this um of course and his own story speaks to it. it's not unusual so um find support find your support group and work out from there back into your community if you really choose to with uh, and always be realistic you know the chances of you know converting a community over to loving you as you are is probably you know not going to happen but you never know i mean there may be one or two or three or four that do begin to see a difference and we've seen this you know across our our nations how dramatic that difference has been in the last 50 years so it does happen but uh, before you go out and be a prophet you know get some backup yeah. Dai, what uh, I see you nodding. You agree with Sherry? Yes, I do agree with Sherry. Um, I think that it's very important that people understand of, of, that they, they don't, they shouldn't do it alone, but also that for them to understand, because I, I believe teaching people the basics so that when they're there, when I'm not there to help them, they're able to handle the, the conversation. One of those things that, that I do. Um, there's a part in the Quran that talks about that God created us 
and different tongues and colors so that we can become better to know each other. And I forced the conversation not from just races and languages, but also the Quran speaks about the internal aspect of who we are, both in our tastes and our temperaments. And when I force them to that level of understanding, I tell them that's how I can see that God created 8 billion people, and we're all very different, as much as different as our fingertips, you know, um, our fingerprints. And therefore, it forces them to think outside the box, which I challenge them about. When you say God is great, how great is God? And so it helps them to really push outside of that box. And then but it's, it usually quiets them down, of course. <laughs> Some of them murmur. <laughs> but that's okay. It gives them something to think about. Yeah, do you, are you ever scared? Uh, because you seem like someone who wouldn't be afraid at all in, in, uh, in dealing with someone who's confrontational. Well, no, I'm, I'm not afraid. I, I know which battles to choose. Mm-hmm. So, but that's the thing. But most people there, you know, I'm 6'4", 300 pounds, and I think a lot of people <laughs> don't want to tussle with me, even though I am in my mid-60s now. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, but the thing is I find humor is yeah. a better way of approaching things. And most people look at me and say, you know, you're such a gentle giant. Well, okay, I can go along with that. <laughs> I've also found humor to be very helpful. I was on a radio show with a football player host, two straight guys, and they were going on about some of the myths about gay people. And I said, you know, actually, you're wearing a really, to the, to the big football player, who was kind of conservative, I said, you're wearing a really tasteful tie. And if I didn't know better, I would guess you were gay. And he got so flustered. And then and we actually wound up being quite friendly by the end of the interview. But he wasn't expecting me to tease him about uh, about about his sexuality. Um, I did the same with Bill O'Reilly when I said, I said, well, you know, you could sleep with men if you if you chose to. You might not like it. And that really threw him off his game, too. <laughs> so I <laughs> so, actually my favorite to be on were with the conservatives, because um, you could. Uh, I found people I could engage people unless they were Fred Phelps. Um, that there was a level at which you could engage people. Um, Matthias, I wonder um, what it's like for you if you've uh, you had to engage your parents. Um, is there a point at which you'd simply give up and uh, and fold your tent and go home, or fold your cards, I should say? Yeah, I, I mean it's interesting because I I do believe my parents fall into that category of of people who probably will not change, right? I hold hope and also the reality of, it's not likely. We've, we've been having mm-hmm. these conversations for my life now. Uh, but the thing that I keep coming back to is, is, and everyone else has, has said this in one way or another, the power of relationships uh, and the power of human empathy. Uh, realizing like knowing our texts, knowing our arguments is very, very, very important. Absolutely. And primarily cognitive arguments aren't the things that change people. It's the relationships mm-hmm. involved. Um, mm-hmm. It's the human to human connection. Uh, and so when I think about this question, I think about the building of relationships, but the reality that building relationships costs something too. Uh, and so mm-hmm. there's kind of that balance of making sure we're safe in the process. Um, but also relationships are important and reaching across the divide. So and all those things together. Um, yeah. 
I thought when we had our commitment ceremony, my partner and I, 24 years ago, we invited um, a lot of relatives and some of whom were not so good about gay people. One of them referred to my, one of my mother's cousins referred to me as a faggot uh, the first time she spoke to him about me. And he and his wife were at our commitment ceremony and he did a complete 180, seeing what our relationship was like and seeing what depth there was to our commitment. Um, so you're right, relationships, getting, letting people see who we are um, can change hearts and minds, but that's, you know, we have to keep safe also um, and protect ourselves. Um, there's a comment, I just wanted to add, just a comment from one of our, our viewers saying, I noticed Catholicism is not represented. Um, I'm married to a Catholic, I don't know if that counts. Um, there are organizations um, like Dignity and New Ways Ministry, which are very supportive of GLBT uh, Catholics. So that's for those of you who are Catholic who are watching today, that's the two organizations are Dignity and New Ways Ministry. Um, and I mentioned Keshet, which uh, is a, a Jewish organization. Sherry, I wonder if there's an organization you recommend. Well, in the United Church, it's called Affirm. Uh, that's, a, uh, that's a name that has been used in other organizations in the Anglicans, uh, Episcopal Church in the States, and other denominations. Uh, I, I can't think of a denomination now that doesn't have um, you know, an LGBTQ uh, organization uh, that you need uh, to connect with. And that's where I would start, wherever you are. Yeah. yeah. Dai, is there an organization you recommend? Well, for there are many social organizations um, across the world today. But in terms of religious, I think Mecca Institute is pretty much the only one that's out there on that front. And mm -hmm. part of our mission in order to develop um, um, a plethora of inclusive mosques eventually, because we're doing the process of training people, become chaplains, and then eventually get them into the community. Um, hopefully by 2030, we want to have at least 50 inclusive mosques in North America and wherever else we can build them. But I think this is something since we are, you know, the nascent period of development uh, part of my legacy is to help build this community outwards, but also to help bring in more people who are, I've, as I found a number of imams who have said that they're not against gay people, but they can't do so publicly. Right. And so to be able to bring them in and train them a bit better so that they can then return to their communities and help people bridge that gap. So I can want to be able to offer both of them. But right now we're we're in the process of building Matthias, you, you have a, a podcast that brings people together for conversation. Um, can you tell me what, um, how you came to do the podcast and what you hope people get from it? Yeah, so, so I came to the podcast after kind of being in the blogging world for a while and in these conversations of, of kind of specifically Christianity or evangelical Christianity and queerness. Through that, I met tons of people and and this idea came to me of what would it mean f to get all of these folks together and have conversations that are beyond the can you be queer and a person of faith but actually what does it look like to live as queer people of faith or not of faith anymore right like there's there's that mix uh in so my, my hope for the podcast is is primarily for i, I think of young me searching for for people thinking I'm the only person in the world who has this story and to show folks like there are many, many of us out there who are living wonderful lives 
mm-hmm. and and identify in many many different ways. Um, but to show you can be a person of faith, whatever that means, uh, and a queer person, uh, mm-hmm. and and live into abundance and to flourishing. And where can people find Queerology? Yes, it's wherever you get podcasts. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have two more questions. One comes from the audience, and then I have a final question for each of you. Um, this question is, how do you all avoid getting emotional <laughs> or angry? Well, that's a good question. So you can continue to think and not escalate when trying to discuss LGBTQ um, uh, rights with people who are fixed in their ways. Uh, this is a person who's looking for methods, hints, tips, tricks. Even a cheat sheet would help. Love you all. Thank you for this. Um, Amy Ashworth, who was an early member and leader in PFLAG, Parents, Friends, and Families of Lesbians and Gays, gave me advice early in my career. Uh, she said, always say it with a smile. And I always did. And it served me incredibly well. Even if I was seething inside, there was only one time where I got angry on a it was the last radio show I did on the phone with a call and show. And in fact, it was the person who uh, who suggested that uh, gay people would marry their pets if uh, if gay marriage were, were marriage equality were passed, to which I actually in the end said, uh, look, if you want to marry your pet and you can get informed consent, you're welcome to marry your dog or your horse. But until you can get informed consent, sorry. Um, and I was really angry um, and and it upset me so much that I had to remind myself what Amy Ashworth said, um, always say it with a smile. Sherry? In my very first internship site, uh, my supervisor clergy then uh, in a very rural conservative town uh, because the United Church supported uh, legalized same-sex marriage and the ordination of queers, um, a lot of his congregation stayed away. They were in the farm community and one of, we went as a, as a teaching moment, he took me out to see one of the farmers who had stayed away because he didn't agree. Um, and uh, the first words out of the farmer's mouth to him were, uh, so uh, Martin, I hear you're performing them same-sex marriages now. And uh, my supervisor, Martin, said, uh, why, Bob, do you have somebody in mind? And I remember <laughs> that moment because the farmer laughed I laughed, uh, my supervisor laughed, and he was back in church the next Sunday. Um, So humor always. The other thing I would say is it's not about you. It's about them. I mean, it's what you're, you're dealing with when you're dealing with somebody that fixed is a long history of pain a long history of their own kind of suffering. And so, you know, try to look at them with eyes of compassion and a smile because it has nothing to do with you and it has everything to do with their own journey and their own problems and their own struggles. So just keep that in mind. Thank you. Matthias? You know, two things. I, I think one is, is a returning to where does my identity actually lie? And does this person have the ability to shake that? Um, so kind of a recentering uh, within where I'm actually finding my value and my worth um, and, and holding on to that within the conversations. I also wonder, this is a little bit therapeutic, but I also wonder about the role of emotions within these conversations. Um, there is a place for grief. There is a place for anger. Uh, sometimes when we use those on behalf of our conversations, it can be very, very, very powerful. Um, so, so kind of stealing up may not, not always, I mean, it's a situation by situation kind of thing, but may not always be the right approach. Sometimes people do need to see emotion. So you could say, in fact, 
that makes me very angry as opposed to enacting your anger by losing your temper. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. 26 years of therapy. I learned something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I used to enact my anger when I was a child. It was a very bad thing. Um, so, uh, Dai, you're going to get the final word here. Um, what about the anger and, and emotion? How do you deal with that? Well, when I find that the, the, the person is emotional, I, I empathize with them and try to seek that common place between us because I know that if I can express a similar experience with them, then I've, I've been able to connect to them and then offer them an opportunity to let's share more about that pain. And the same way with the anger, too, to let them know that I understand and there may be something that may, when we're in anger, we may not be clear about. And then I offer to them an opportunity to further this discussion when things are calmer. But what if you're angry? I'm sorry? What if you're angry? If I'm angry, then I go out and I, as um, Aviva said, I go out and I count to ten. And then I just let it go because I say it's, it's bigger than me and it's not that important to get angry about it. And it's an opportunity to learn. So um, that, that quickly allows me to just surrender it and get rid of it. And I'm ready to continue the conversation. I want to thank all of you, the four of you, for your wisdom today. I'm so grateful for the time you have given us and for your thoughts. I have a thousand more questions for you. I hope we can do a panel like this again, because there's so many things I'd like to know about each of you and your experiences. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.